Hello and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Life Community Church, Leamington Spa. Recorded at one of our Sunday morning services, we hope this message inspires, equips and encourages you to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'm really excited to be looking at Philippians this week because for anyone who knows me, I spent three years away at Bible College. Uh, When would that have been now? Well, about four years ago now, it would have been. Uh, And during my third year, I had the huge opportunity and privilege to do quite an in-depth study into Philippians. And in fact, I even wrote my dissertation on the chapter I've been asked to speak about today. So... I'm not going to go into it. I'm not going to read all my dissertation to you, so don't worry about that. But I've just got a little bit of something from there that I really want to share today. I've only just scratched the surface with it, so please, there's loads to know about this topic, about about the Bible. So please, if I don't cover anything, if it leaves you with a little scratch that you you want itching or an itch that you want scratching, whichever way those words go around, please go away and study it. Please, I want to encourage you, grab, the, grab your Bible, maybe grab a commentary, grab an introduction, grab something and just have, have a little study, have a look, have a read, see what you can find out for yourself, ask questions. Questions are fantastic and I, I was always told in school that actually the only stupid question is the one that's not asked. There are no stupid questions basically. If you ask it, it's great. Fantastic. And I would love to help you as well along with anyone else here part, who's part of the staff and the team of LCC. So last week, as I said, Dave kicked off this series looking at Philippians 1. He gave us a little bit of a background information into the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. And I want to just go a little bit deeper into that. I just want to flesh it out a little bit more. Dave did a great job in just setting the scene, but I think we can go just a little bit deeper. And in fact, I've got a few pictures which I want to show you guys in just a moment. Fantastic. Thank you, Felix. I often find that as I'm studying the Bible, as I'm studying particularly a letter to a particular church, that if I can begin to picture what it might look like today, then I can, in my mind's eye, I can begin to build up an image of what it would look like in the original, original context. And once I've got that in my head, it helps ground it as real. Does anyone else here find that actually with the amount of books and movies and stories that are out there, often we can reduce what's in here down to maybe just a bit of bedtime reading, maybe something you you might open up in the morning just to get you going sort of thing. But actually, what happens in here, what we read about in here, that's, that's real. So when we see towns like this, when we see ruins, when we see pictures like this, it helps me remember that what's in here is real. So fantastic. Let's just have a look at these. So for anyone who's listening to the podcast, can we just go back a minute, Felix, please? Thank you very much. So anyone who's listening on the podcast, we've got a few pictures on the screen. I'm just going to show you around them now. So the first one here on, the, on your left, that's one thing I can't do, Leanne. I can't tell my left from right, apparently. Uh, so on the left, we have the theatre in Philippi, ancient ruined Philippi now. So realistically, the Philippian people who probably would have attended the church would have gathered there at some point. They would have maybe seen entertainment, theatre, acts. Uh, Paul would have probably even spoken there at some point in his life. Over here, we have the marketplace on the right. We have the main marketplace. Now this, we heard last week from Dave, that uh, when Paul visited Philippi, he encountered a young girl who who was possessed by a demon. And we can read about it in the book of Acts. Uh, Paul cleanses this woman of the demon, casts her out, and ultimately he ends up in a bit of trouble. But um, to be honest, that's probably where it happened. 
Traders would have been there. Market people. That would have been the centre of the community. Let's go on to the next one, please, Felix. Finally, we've got a bit of a, a, a satellite image in a reconstruction of Philippi. So you can see running straight through the middle up there, we have the Via Ignatia. That was one of the main Roman roads, a huge trade route running right through the city, right through the centre of town. And from there, there would have been all sorts of trade going straight to Rome. Have you ever heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome? Yeah? It's because they did. All roads did, literally, used to lead to Rome. So that road would have gone all the way through from, I don't know where it comes from, but probably out towards Asia, maybe, and then follows out towards Rome, straight through the centre of town. We have the marketplace, the atrium, the agora you can see mentioned there. And then just over here, we have the city walls. And again, if you're reading in Acts, you notice that Paul meets Lydia down by the riverside. And just beside the wall, I don't know if you can read it from where you're sat, you probably can't. Uh, it just says, to the river, that way. So just off scene, just off the picture, is where Paul would have met Lydia the leader, or who we, event, who we think becomes eventually the leader of the early church in Philippi. Fantastic. So now we've got that, we can begin to build up just a little bit of a picture of what Paul is talking about when he's writing to the Philippian church. So what do we know about Philippi? Well, this city, this town, as, as, as Dave mentioned last week, was a Greek city. It was Paul's first European trip. He crossed over into Europe, and this was his first town that we read about. It's also where he, ended, he had his first European prison sentence. Who's up for that, yeah? Who here often, when they're going away on holiday, they might write a list and say play, different places they want to see, maybe people they want to meet. Yeah, I often think that Paul actually had this list of people he wanted to speak to, people he wanted to annoy, and prisons that he wanted to visit. Because literally, he crosses over into Europe, He's in prison straight away. Again, you can read about that in the book of Acts. But Philippi was a Roman colony. So what does that mean, being a Roman colony? Well, now, whilst it's not stated in the Bible, we know that by looking at history, it was a Roman colony. And this is actually really quite significant for us uh, to know as we study Philippians. Roman colonies were, in effect, miniature Romes. They were an extension of the capital of the Roman Empire. Now, what does that mean? See, we're getting deeper and deeper slowly as we're just beginning to unravel and un un unpick the text. If you were a Roman citizen and you lived in Rome, you had all sorts of extra privileges, extra benefits, tax exemptions, the lot. And these colonies were miniature Romes scattered across the empire. Not every town was a colony. Not every city even was a colony. It was a special place if you were in a Roman colony, especially if you were a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship also was something to be aspired to. We hear in the book of Acts that Paul is a Roman citizen. He appeals to his Roman citizenship to help him get out of prison. Hey, that's a pretty good benefit, isn't it? Fantastic. Uh, citizenship was something to be aspired to, and it could be earned in various different ways. If, if, for example, you served in the Roman military, and like we have medals, perhaps, a medal for valour or something like that, you could be awarded a Roman citizenship, and that citizenship then passed down your bloodline, down to your family, so your son, your children, your, your grandchildren, they would then be Roman citizens, and so you ended up with these grand families eventually with traditions 
of citizenship. This is how we think that Paul actually came to be a Roman citizen. So what, what does a man from, realistically, what's Turkey now? How does he end up being a Roman citizen? Well, we think actually his father probably fought for the Roman Empire, and then that was passed down to him. So Paul becomes a Roman citizen that way. Just like a large proportion of Philippi's population, a large proportion in this Roman colony would have been citizens. Philippi was given the status of Roman colony by Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor at the time, and following a great victory of Caesar Augustus fighting alongside Mark Antony against a political rival in a civil war. Following all of this, Philippi was given colony status. Why am I telling you all this? Because it makes up who Paul is writing to. A large proportion of the people that Paul would have spoken to when he was in Philippi, that he's writing this letter to, were veterans of war. They were Roman citizens, fully indoctrinated in the Roman ways. Now, I simply don't have time to go into what it meant fully as a Roman, how Roman culture clashes with Christian culture. But please do go away and check that out at some point. But if, if you hadn't already guessed, the letter to the Philippians is so radically different, in my opinion, to any other New Testament text where Corinthians, take the book of Corinthians, writes to a highly dysfunctional church. It's very personal, written to specific people. Hey, you, stop doing that. You, why are you doing that? Come on, keep doing that. We've got to be doing this sort of thing. He's writing to a highly dysfunctional church. And in the book of Romans, he's writing to people he's never actually met. He's encouraging them, saying, come on, yes, you're doing it well. Keep going. He's encouraging them. But Philippians, Philippians is intensely political. We've got these two sides, two polar opposites warring. You've got the Roman Empire and the might of Caesar Augustus over here. And you've got the Christians and you've got Jesus over here. And they're literally at loggerheads. You cannot bring the two together. Before we go any further, I think we should probably have a look at Philippians. So I'm going to read a little bit. We've got it on the screen as well coming up. Uh, let me just find it in here. I like it, this, this Bible, because I've got a post-it note in there, which is just before Philippians. And I've never taken that, well, I did take it out at one point, but uh, it's in there from when I was speaking in a church in Romania, in a, sorry, in a prison in Romania. So every time I think, right, Ephesians or Philippians, I see that post-it note and think, oh, yeah, that was amazing. Fantastic. Let's see what I can find. There we go. Brilliant. So we're going to be reading Philippians. We're going to pick up from the end of chapter one, where Dave left off last week, and then we're going to be going into Philippians chapter two. So verse 27, it says, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, and you are in no way intimidated by your opponents. For them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation, and this is God's doing. For he has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. Since you're having the same struggle that I saw, uh, I had, that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Moving on to chapter 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, 
any consolation from love, any sharing in spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look out to your own interests. Sorry, look, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And now we're going to be moving into what I think is one of the most potent texts in the whole of the New Testament. These few verses I wrote 8,000 words on, and I could have kept on going. There's just so much to say about them. So I'm going to keep going now. It's from verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars. So what have we just read? Obviously Philippians. But aside from one of my favourite texts in the New Testament, one of the most profound passages, we've seen a model for Christian life. But not just for Christian life, but for Christian life in the world. I want to hang today's message on chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, because, as I keep on saying, this passage is so, so profound, it's so radical, that if we can even begin to grasp this text, then it can t take our lives and transform it from one direction and turn it to another. It can completely change the way we view our lives. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rip through it just a little bit. I'm going to go on through it. I just want to pick it apart just a little bit, help you guys just come to understand a little bit about what's going on. So let's pick it up from verse 5. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now, do you remember how I said that this letter is written to Roman citizens? It's written to Greek people, but it's also written to address different matters of disunity and disparity. In a couple of weeks, Dave's going to be speaking and picking out just a few characters that are mentioned in the letter of Philippians. And two of those in particular Paul mentions as being at loggerheads, being at, um, disunified, uh, having a disagreement with each other. And this letter, Paul is speaking and encouraging them, come on, bring it together, let's make up, bring it back together. Well, here is 
the example, let's say. We've just sang, uh, heard a song, Jesus, you are the way. Well, here is the way that we can follow the way in coming to this solution that Paul brings. One commentator on this verse simply rephrases it and says that actually verse 5 could be written, within your communities, cultivate this mindset. Shift your mind. In order to reset your mind, you have to set your mind on something else. Allow the thought process of Jesus to grow and to shape your thoughts. Verse 6. Is it on here? Yep. Who... Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. This is really interesting because actually this whole passage that we're speaking about today, uh, verse 5 onwards, is actually, we think, one of the first cases of early Christian worship. We don't actually think that Paul wrote this individual part. He put it in there because, amazingly enough to think, Christians would have sung or recited this as part of worship in their normal gatherings to Jesus. And right at the very start, no matter what trials and turmoils they're facing, people are declaring Jesus is God. But at the same time, no matter what his status, no matter what his position, he didn't regard his equality with God as something to be exploited He didn't regard his position, his authority, his ultimate power as something to be exploited. Verse 7. Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. The Greek word here for emptied is kenosis, which means a literal full emptying as if, if you turned himself inside out and left nothing inside at all. This also can tr- be translated to mean the abdication of divinity. Jesus abdicates his divinity. He gives up his authority and his power. He gives up everything, all of his equality with God. He gives that up and he empties himself, laying it all down, laying down his honour and taking on the form of a slave The form of God becomes the form of man. Verse 8, Jesus continues to humble himself. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He continues to humble himself, laying down all of his honour, all of his privileges, all of his divinity. Jesus continually comes down. He comes down. We have this downward trajectory from the highest of highs down to the deepest of deeps, if that's a phrase. At this point, I, I want to step back and just emphasise the power of crucifixion it says that even death on a cross I've not got time and I don't really want to actually go into the actual science the physicality of crucifixion because it's disgusting it is nasty let's not look at that but what is interesting is the social side behind this crucifixion is hugely hugely significant in the ancient world two kinds of people were crucified by the Roman emperor. We often see it as just a common form of capital punishment. No, only two people were crucified, two types, I should say, of people. 
Firstly, a runaway slave. And secondly, a rebel. Now, Jesus doesn't really fit any of those by our characteristics. He's not a runaway slave. He's not a rebel fighter at all. But he takes on the form of a slave. He's, he's continually giving himself up from God at this point. The, to the Jewish audience, there, there would have been, as Dave mentioned, a few Jewish people in Philippi. Not too many, but there would have been a few. And to the Jewish audience, there was a great shame on anyone who was crucified. It says in their law that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And so for the Jewish onlooker, maybe if they saw Jesus' crucifixion or they heard about it, they would have tutted and shook their head. Oh, shame. Shame on him. Shame on him dying on a cross. But as we know, Paul was writing largely to a Gentile audience, a non-Jewish people. To the Roman onlookers, there was even greater shame of mentioning the word crucifixion, of mentioning the cross. To be honest, Roman citizens wouldn't have gone to watch a crucifixion, such was the shame. In fact, they wouldn't have even said the word, such was the social taboo on it. The fact that Paul mentions it here is really significant. We think it's actually been added into this ancient Roman worship. It's not an original part of there. He humbles himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The fact that Paul mentions it is a bold statement. It's a declaration that what the world has seen as shameful, what the world sees as a curse, as unacceptable, God has taken. He's twisted it and he's turned it into a symbol of hope. He's turned the cross into a symbol of love and of life and a symbol of resurrection. Verse 9, therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above all names. Now at this point, as, as I said, Jesus he starts off at this point at the highest of highs and he works his way down to essentially the lowest of lows, death on a cross. And now we see that trajectory begin to shift again in an upwards pattern. So Jesus started on the high, he comes on down and then he begins to ascend once again, back up to the highest of highs. He's been given the name that is above all names. All authority has been given to Jesus. At his name alone, things happen. Having been to the deepest, Jesus returns to the highest. We see at the end of the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is sending out his disciples. This is after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, and just before his ascension. Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, I have been given all authority and now I am always with you, therefore go. Jesus has all authority, but he's always with us. The next few verses in this chapter are, again, some of my favourite. Now, I think if I were to ask you, you all here, what's your favourite passage from the Bible? We might have ones like John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever might believe in his name will not perish, but will have eternal life. Fantastic, really great. Or we might get a verse like Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nothing wrong with these verses at all. Really strong, powerful declarations. But for me, these next few verses are actually probably some of my favourite. 
Because it speaks of the authority of Jesus. And it really encapsulates, as I said before, this war that's going on between Rome and Jesus. We've got this war going on and these next few verses really encapsulate this. The name above all names has been given to Jesus. And at this name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is above the Queen. He's above Theresa May. He's above the EU. And most importantly, to the original reader of the book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, he's above Caesar. He's above the Roman Emperor. He's above any other form of authority who may be Lord above our lives. And I don't know what situations we're facing today. I don't know whether you've just moved into a new area, you're, you're looking for a new job, you're looking for a house, you're just settling down, or maybe you're at work and you're not happy, or maybe actually you woke up this morning and everything seems fine. Actually, I've, I've not got anything to complain about. I don't know where you're coming from today, but actually these verses remind us of a day that is to come where every tongue will confess, every knee, and that includes Caesar, that includes the Queen, it includes Theresa May, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The letter to the Philippians, and especially chapter 2, instructs us to look to Jesus' example, to be of the same mindset of Jesus, to cultivate his mindset in our communities. As Paul also goes on to write, it is God who's at work in our lives. It's God who's shifting and changing and helping us cultivate this mindset in our lives. And it's God who's doing this, who's working these things out for his pleasure. Did you know that you're an item of God's pleasure this morning? Yeah? Did you know that? I don't always feel like it sometimes, you know. When I wake up at quarter past six to leave for work at seven in the morning, I don't feel like an item of God's pleasure. To be honest, all I feel like is I need a cup of coffee. And another half hour in bed, maybe. I don't feel like an item of God's pleasure. I am a work in progress. We are all works in progress. And it's not me that's working on me. I can do certain things, I can learn, I can read the Bible, I can grow, I can pray. But it's not me who's at work in me. It's God, God who's at work in me for his pleasure. Verse 14, I'm just coming into land now. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. This is perhaps a bit more an uh, of an appropriate applicable handle for the mindset of Jesus. Obviously, we don't find ourselves in the form of God, in equality with God. So how can we cultivate that side of his mindset? Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars. Let's pray. We hope that you enjoyed this message. For many more resources and for more information, visit our website at www.life-cc.org.